But do not be cast down, said Aslan, still speaking to the beasts. Evil will come out of that evil, but it is still a long way off, and I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. In the meantime, let us take such order that for many hundred years, yet this shall be a merry land and a merry world. And as Adam's race has done the harm, Adam's race shall help to heal it. Hey there, welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we are doing a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm Chase. And I'm Kel. Thank you guys for joining us today. Just a reminder that we are talking about the magician's nephew today, but general spoiler warning for the Narnia series as a whole, as well as heads up, like if you've listened before, you know we go on tangents, we talk about other stories we enjoy. We'll do our best to give spoiler warnings along the way where it makes sense. But today we are discussing the magician's nephew, chapter 11. Diggory and his uncle are both in trouble. Trouble, trouble. So, the talking animals are trying to figure out what exactly Uncle Andrew is. They have no concept. They have no concept of clothes, or really a lot of things. Uh, and uh, so, they have no knowledge of what the kids, the cabby Uncle Andrew, are. If they're even the same species. Plus, at this point, Uncle Andrew is a little bit of a mess, and so he kind of looks like a little bit of a, a little bit of everything. And so, worst of all, he doesn't seem to be able to speak. He's unintelligible. Uh, the animals couldn't understand him more than he could understand them. And then Uncle Andrew faints, something that they've never seen happen as well. The animals are trying to figure out what he is. And since he collapsed, they can only assume that he's been a tree that has been felled by some sort of uh, axe or some uh, something else. Uh, others think that he's an animal. But after you know voting, uh, using a real democratic system under this, lo- this government that Aslan has uh, not even set up yet, the majority thinks he's a tree, and so they go to plant him in a hole which they have dug uh, by some moles. Luckily, they plant him feet first after uh, almost putting him head first. Uh, and then he is uh, graciously watered by the trunk of an elephant so that he may grow. Uh, and he wakes up uh, after you know being sprayed and doused uh, by all of this water. And in the end, it revives Andrew. Uh, and it terrifies him before the scene shifts back to Diggory, riding over to meet Aslan, the great and beautiful and terrifying lion that he is. Uh, and timidly, he asks Aslan if he could give him some magic fruit, again, a very specific request, uh, to help his mother uh, heal from her disease. And rather than respond, Aslan turns to the group of animals and says that this is the boy who did it. And not a great thing that you want to hear from the guy who just created everything out of land bubbles Uh, and so he tells Diggory that there's an evil witch abroad in his new land and he wants him to explain to the animals how she got there. Diggory stumbles his way through the story but uh, after saying some half-truths and getting pressed by Aslan he ends up speaking the full truth and would confess to the larger picture. After the story Aslan says to them all you see evil has already entered our new world but don't be cast down because though evil will come out of that evil it's a long way off and I'll take the worst upon myself and in the meantime let's party let's have a great time Uh, and Adam uh, you know the human guy uh, because they did all the harm they'll help with the the healing and so Aslan calls Polly and Cabby to come over says he's known the Cabby for a long time and Cabby feels like he has too but doesn't really understand it because he's just a simple simple cab man Uh, and then after a uh, time of speaking, Aslan was like, hey, you want to come join me forever here? 
And he's like, uh, I mean, that'd be great, but I got a wife. And Aslan's like, boom, she's here. Gives her a call uh, with his mighty magical roar. And she teleports into uh, Narnia with an irresistible call and says, uh, they, he begins to ask if they would like to be the first king and queen of Narnia. And after a quick little interview section, uh, because, you know, Cabby doesn't think that he's, he's, he's qualified enough because of his lack of education. Uh, you know, Aslan asks if he can work the soil, if he can rule creatures, if he can be kind and fair and, and he'll protect them from enemies. And he says that he can do that all. And Aslan says that that's all that he needs uh, to do to be a proper king. Aslan then turns to Paula and asks if she has forgiven Diggory for what happened in the Hall of Images. She says that she has. Then Aslan turns his just real intense, strong gaze over to Diggory himself, and the chapter ends. Oh, cool. All right. The theme we've given to this chapter is arrangements. The arrangement of Uncle Andrew in his hole as a tree. Um, the arrangements uh of the people finding out how the witch got there the arrangement of a new government for narnia uh all, all the arrangements um things are being put into order um but yeah where i kind of want to start here is really just the fact that and uncle andrew is the real beast here like agreed basically from from the beginning like he is there's a real flipping of of what's going on here where he is the object of observation and all these animals are just gathering around him to figure out what the heck is going on with this thing is it a person is it a tree it's probably a tree to be honest let's just call it a tree and, and tree. that's how they settle he is a tree officially officially it's 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 a crazy little circumstance, and I think it's interesting that you know in this time, like obviously we know that he is a human, and we know that he's these things. But the fact that he is seen as bestial, he's seen as something that is different. He's he's not just easily understood to be like these other creatures of Polly Diggory and the cabbie that uh, were were there because he's he's incapable of speech in this moment. He's kind of looks disheveled, and from the beginning of this book, we've realized that Uncle Andrew may not be the the ultimate evil but he's he doesn't seem quite humane he's not decent he's not good he's not uh all these things and so he's not easily recognizable and empathetic that's really good how his lack of humanity leads him to no longer being treated as human yeah very poetic kill you know uh i like to think every now and then that i can speak some good words but uh, other times I feel myself just like Uncle Andrew and all that comes out is just a bunch of nonsense so or like the cabbie just not having enough education hey dude we'll talk about his lack of education and really if he's been educated in the right ways uh but that'll good, come good later. enough to be king it's good uh, enough to be king for me man uh so speaking of these words and the things that are spoken uh I, I have this this observation that C.S. Lewis writes that, you know, Uncle Andrew tries to speak and he tries to say, good doggy, uh, then poor old fellow. Uh, and he says that dogs don't like being called good doggy. And I have I just, you know, we talked about willful, willful ignorance last chapter and how we don't necessarily consider the perspective of animals sometimes. But 
I'd like to disagree here with with Mr. Clive because yeah, I have a dog, and I know you do too. And when I call her good girl, when I like rubber rubber face and like give her a nice little belly rub and say who's a good girl and like all these things, she lights up. She has a great time. Uh, and so you know, maybe I need to check my perspective here a little bit and need to check my human privilege. But I I feel like dogs do enjoy being called good doggy as has you know maybe c.s lewis hasn't seen all of these animal memes about being good doggos and uh good little puppers but i yeah i think i just i take some grievance here yeah i mean i'm looking at my dog right now and i know he loves being told he's a good boy yeah and yeah i i agree i i don't think uh i don't think that clive is is on the money there but like sure to be I, fair, I this be... bulldog is very particular about the way it's addressed. It's got that some real fair. nose insecurity. He's, um, bro, does he? I'll tell you, I think out of every character that we have seen in this book so far, and we've seen quite a few, and this does take place. It's a, this is an English mythology almost. Um, I think this bulldog has got to be the most British character that we've encountered. Uh, he is very proper. He gets put off really easily. Uh, his like catchphrase is I object to that remark very strongly. Uh, and he repeats it on multiple occasions, which like it plays for laughs, but this bulldog has got to be the most British character here, right? More so than any of the actual Britons that are running around this story. Yeah, he is very uppity. Um, again, I am, if you're if a anything, British person listening to this podcast, we do love y'all. Like, Oh, for sure. But you just like as Texans, we know the stereotypes about Texas and what's true and what's out there and, and all that. And we can take the joke. I would assume that British people are used to it at this point. Sure. And if sure. we learn anything from the story of the bulldog and the elephant for that matter, it's not about the size of the nose. It's about how you use it boy is it uh, so uh before we get to this i'd just like to make sure that we recognize this jackdaw this crow that we mentioned in the last chapter he's so desperate for someone else to be the point of humor uh, other than himself uh there's uh, another animal that you know takes a step one of the bears takes a step and falls backwards and the jackdaw's like the third joke anyone another joke uh he's really riding on that train He. He, he really wants someone else to be made fun of. He's the guy that's trying way too hard and is just going to get made fun of for it. And so, like I said previously, I would feel bad for him, but it's a crow and I don't feel, feel, feel that bad. But we come upon this elephant uh, and this elephant is is really nosest, I think. Uh, she is a very elitist about her nose uh, yeah. because she says very few of us have what would uh, what could exactly be called a nose she squinted down the length of her own trunk with pardonable pride and then you know the bulldog is offended by this and uh later on she's gonna talk about uh you know this bulldog which i agree with this statement you know he says if a fellow can't trust his nose what is he to trust uh and you know the elephant's like hey smelling it and everything uh and he's you know she says like brains are perhaps more strong than a nose being intelligent and the bulldog by this is also offended. And so this, uh, this elephant's got some real attitude, real classism here about her, her nose. And yeah, is an elephant's trunk. Awesome. For sure. No doubt. Yeah. 
But elephants don't use their trunks to smell, I don't think. I think it's mainly for the uh, the picking up, actually. Of all the people to be, like, holding up their nose privilege, the elephant has is the exception to every other rule as far as noses go. It seems like she shouldn't be the one who's, like, setting all the terms for this nose discussion. But I definitely got vibes the entire conversation. Elephant and bulldog just need to fight it out. I, you know, I don't think it'd be a quick fight. Uh, you know, some say, some say that a, an elephant would crush a bulldog and maybe, but hey, she got smaller whenever Al- Aslan gave them uh speaking abilities though. And he got bigger. So yeah, never know. but how much smaller and how much bigger, because I would be, I would be hard pressed to say that even a small elephant could not win in a fight against a big bulldog. But you know who knows? It could be could be a fair fight. Bulldogs this feels uh, like a political cartoon waiting to happen. But like elephant versus the bulldog. Is what the bull- bulldog like the Libertarian Party, could Green be. Party? It's the some third party. I mean, Kanye's I don't know, party. I don't know what the English party systems are, and so maybe it's like the Whigs. I don't know if they're still a thing. The uh, Tories. The the Federalists. Uh, no, they probably wouldn't really enjoy the Federalists. I think that's American history. I don't know. If you're right. You're right. My bad. Yeah, that was uh, watching Hamilton too much. But, uh, you know, who knows? Um, but yeah, so they they have this argument and then they they come speaking of, you know, politics and government. They decide to democratically vote uh, that this is a treat and everyone agrees. Most of the, the majority takes it. Parliament has decided uh, that. This this creature, this Uncle Andrew, it's got to be a tree. And so what do you do with trees, Chase? Plant them. You plant them and but hope they man, grow. And Is this an argument for a republic or a monarchy over a straight democracy? Or is it? Like, I can see why Aslan decided to go with uh, a king. Because uh, if this is what, what they're coming to when they vote, it's a tough time. Hey, dude, Britain's a constitutional monarchy, man. They've got a king, but they've also got a voting system. They need to make sure every voice is heard, but ultimately, you know, there's one I person. I mean, par- Parliament is a Republican system, too, right? Uh, they vote Like elected in, officials to represent the They, uh, vote, it, they the vote a party. I believe they vote a party. Now, if we have British listeners, please, uh, you know, correct us if we're wrong. Uh, but I've been watching The Crown, and I believe that they vote in a party, and then the party selects the uh the members of who will be like ruling in that in that time frame and i saw diana is on the on the picture thing on netflix for the new season i'm excited she crushes it she's great she looks exactly she looks exactly like diana and it's freaky uh (sighs) but you know back to where we were going so they decide that this is a tree and they decide to plant a tree and they Wonder, well, is the hair the roots because it's all messy? Is the feet the branches? And so maybe we should put them head first into the ground. And then they're like, no, no, no. The feet look much more like roots. Thank God, because they they put them in a hole about, you know, two feet down. Uh, And then the elephant is about to go and spray him with water, which this could have easily become like a whole waterboarding situation. Oh, yeah. He was about to drown. But also, I disagree with the decision they made just on a, like, pure appearance level. The legs and arms definitely seem more like branches than hair. And hair, especially Uncle Andrew's hair, which, like, think Doc Brown from Back to the Future. Like, his hair looks a lot more like roots than his long legs would. 
So I right. think they messed up here. I think we could have solved our Uncle Andrew problem a little bit earlier. I I mean, well, one, I just want to make sure that the listeners are aware that Chase is advocating for the murder of Uncle Andrew. Now, I would like to make moving, the listeners aware that Kel has ad- advocated for genocide at least twice in the course did of not, this podcast. Here's the thing. Didn't advocate for it. Just, you know, just gamer, justified it. Just, just trying to understand some characters. Game respect game. Uh, but <laughs> uh, no, but want to make sure that everyone knows that Chase is justifying, you know, murder here. But I think ultimately, like, I think we could solve this by saying Uncle Andrew doesn't look like a tree. He looks like a human. He's not a tree. Well, they don't know what a human is. They know what a tree is. He can't talk. <laughs> How he do they can't know what? Walk. He's flopped on the ground. Okay, here's the deal. How do they know? How do they not know? What at least a humanoid creature like they have dwarves, and yeah. they have they have nymphs they have, and they have fawns which are half human. They have fawns like they have satyrs which are again half human. They've got a lot of humanoid s creatures. You're telling me that this is unrecognizable. I'm you know, calling. I wish. I'm calling I wish shenanigans I could be here. Outraged about that, but I'm still caught up on where we were last chapter talking about how much they know, how much language they have, and just the fact that how do they know that trees need water? How do they know that you need to dig a hole to plant a tree? How do they know that trees have roots? How do they know anything because they haven't learned anything? Because as Aslan says, this world has existed for less than seven hours. Deus ex knowledgeica. It's just, it's oh too gosh. much. They, uh, it's, I feel it's almost as if C.S. Lewis is writing a kid's story and is just kind of willy nilly deciding what they know and don't know. I mean, it's almost like he's just making it up as he goes. I don't know about that. That seems ridiculous. But gosh. what do I know? I'm not the author of this book. Just a critter. Just a critic? A critter. Just a critter. Just I'm a just critter? I'm just one of them critters. Uh, you, you were born out of uh, out of Earth Bubble too. <laughs> hey, dude. As were we all, man. As were we all. Except for the uh, wood nymphs and satyrs and uh, water gods and all the others. Other bubbles, man. Hey. Not sure. What are we if not each, just... To each their own bubble. What are we if it's not a popped bubble, bro? What are we <laughs> if it's not a popped bubble? Man, so. I feel like a popped bubble most days. Seems right. That's 2020, dude. So, amen. Amen. Uh, and so, after waterboarding Uncle Andrew, he wakes up and he's, you know, given a fright. But as opposed to dealing with that story, C.S. Lewis decides to just skip back to the other scene. Uh, Gotta keep at, the, the Princess Bride going. Yeah. He's like, we're, we're moving back to the other story. Don't worry. We're, uh, we're going to leave Andrew to think about what he's done. Yeah. Because, I mean, you talked about waterboarding. Just kind of some enhanced interrogation going on here. He's yeah, got to think about what he's done. Hey, dude. This is a pro-torture book. Guan, Guan Narni Amo Bay. Hey, dude. That's, uh, that's, that's how it goes. But seems right. we, we flash back over to our scene with our protagonist of Diggory, Polly, the cabbie, Strawberry, all now approaching Aslan. And... Uh, as Aslan is approached by Diggory, his the Council of Elrond ends and they disperse at least, you know, a few feet. Uh, they're trying to social distance a little bit. 
Uh, and Diggory finds himself face to face with Aslan, who is more, he is bigger, more beautiful, more brightly golden, and more terrible than he could have ever thought. And he can't look him in the eyes. Yeah. And, but he still manages to basically be like, hey, could you give me something, a person I've never met before and who just showed yourself to be God of this universe? Could you do me a quick favor? Hey. He's uh no one's ever going to accuse uh accuse Diggory of not being a bold guy, you know. He he goes for it. Yeah, it's a it's a move. I it's did find move. it interesting that Aslan doesn't answer Diggory. Oh, straight up ignores him. Responds yeah. with a question, which based Very on what Aslan is based on, seems right. Spot on the nose for for Jesus's parable kind of nature. Yeah, but, but. it uh it is, it is interesting that Aslan just ignores him, impresses him into basically being part of the conversation. Like, yeah, we've been waiting for you to get here. Tell your story. Don't leave anything out. And, man, it's not often that you can read this much shame without seeing the word shame. What I mean no. by that is like the tone of Diggory and his emotion is so clear in the way that he just doesn't want to tell the whole picture, not because he's trying to lie or manipulate, but because you can just tell he's ashamed of it. Yeah. But one of the things that makes C.S. Lewis a great writer, he never stops to say, yeah, Diggory was feeling really guilty. Diggory was feeling really ashamed. No, it's just, it reads in just the way it is. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was a compelling section of the chapter. Yeah, I think this whole section is so really well written because we all know what it's like to be in this circumstance where we've done something wrong. And especially a kid would know what it's like to have done something wrong and your parent knows it and you know that your parents know it and you're you're afraid to speak the entire truth, but it's going to come out eventually. And so he begrudgingly keeps speaking more and more of the truth. and gets to the point where he's, well, you know, like, this is what happened. And the, the witch came in because she came into our world and I was trying to get her back to her world. And, well, you know, how did, you know, she come to be in the first place? Well, like, I, I you know, I, I woke her up and everything. But um, it's because of my Uncle Andrew. Like, I was there because he made these rings. He's like, yeah, but why did you wake her up? Well, I was enchanted by this magic. And he's like, well, were you? He's like, no, I wasn't. I was just pretending. And it's this whole process of getting this confession out of this, uh, this truth. And as we, you know, we'll see later, that this is, you know, Aslan is a gracious and forgiving guy, right? He's going to, you know, deal at least semi-graciously uh, with all of this. And he's, there is forgiveness to be had with confession, with, you know, bringing truth out of something. Uh, and so I think that's yeah. super, super interesting. Um, and he promises to take the worst of the evil upon himself right here from the beginning. Yeah. He's already projecting his future sacrifice on the stone table at the hands of the evil queen. Right. That's not to say that, you know, there aren't going to be consequences for, uh, you know, the sons and daughters of Adam and for Narnia as a whole, but it is saying like, Hey, ultimately I'm going to deal with this. Y'all will be a part of this healing process, but I am going to be the one that actually conquers it. 
I'm going to be the one yeah. that fixes it. And so at this point in the story, Aslan invites Polly and the cabbie into the conversation as well. And Aslan says he knows the cabbie and asks the cabbie if he knows him. And I thought this was a really cool moment, both because of the like, like, we're like, okay, like, I know you, like, there's some connection to later in the story. I, I'm trying to remember what book it is where Aslan says he is in their world by another name. But I believe that is at the end of Dawn Treader. Uh, it's either, I think it's at the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader because I think he's talking to Lucy. Um, okay. And she is, because that's their last, that's Edmund and Lucy's last time in Narnia. Um, yeah. I believe I could be, I could be wrong among, uh, on that. I mean, but. I'll take it, but yeah, it, it was kind of a like very subtle allusion to that point And really just, you kind of get the sense of like, okay, well the cabbie is a person of faith. Aslan is the creator. God of this world seems to be influential across the worlds have knowledge across the worlds uh, he is the god of the multiverse um <laughs> and yeah so like the cabbie's faith in his own context seems to be according to aslan faith in aslan or knowledge of aslan that he can unpack a little bit over time the longer he stays there he'll get to know aslan better but yeah it's uh it was a cool little moment and definitely wasn't as like hit over the head as I'm even making it now. Cause it was just kind of like half a sentence that you just kind of go over unless you're like, Oh, that that's actually an interesting way to say that. Um, but yeah, you also mentioned that he, uh, it's like, Hey, well, you want to stay here forever? Cabbie had a very Willy Wonka vibe. It's like, hey, hey, you just visited. You, you just got to my Charlie. factory. You won. Welcome to Narnia. Do you want to be the king and queen? Well, we got to skip. We, I skipped a little bit ahead there, but you know, he's he's very very gracious immediately with this cabbie. Yeah, all hell king cabbie. All by the end of this chapter, I don't like. We we need to go back. This is chapter eleven. We we what were we introduced to to the cabbie? Chapter like five or six. Something like that. Um, that feels too early, but who knows? Might be it's right. it's been several chapters. Give this guy chapter a name. Seven. Chapter seven. Give this guy a name. Goodness gracious! Like this is this is now the fifth chapter that he has not had a name, and his wife, who is about to be pulled in, because Aslan's like, "Hey, would you want to stay here forever?" And the cabbie's like, well, you know, I'm married, but if my wife was here with me, we'd both want to stay here forever because London sucks and we, you know, love this place. Uh, a lot of London Good hate. old country folk. Good old country folk. Uh, and so Aslan's like, Roar, come to Narnia. Uh, and so she does. Uh, I believe that's how it went, at least. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's if that's not accurate, then I don't know what is. Um, but it's this irresistible call, which theologically uh, an interesting point to get into that we don't have to get into uh but she what is the pulled... other four points you have <laughs> uh something something about a flower um cool, but cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. uh but 
uh, we we come upon uh, the cabbie has uh, now reunited with his wife, who's been brought into Narnia, and she has a name. It's Nelly. Super cool, you know. I guess if you're a fan of The Office, like go for it. Uh, the the one British lady in the office in the American uh, office. Uh, also, one of the was her name Donna in Doctor Who. I don't know. Keep going. Who knows? Who knows? But she gets a name. Cabby doesn't. Like yeah. hashtag ju- hashtag justice for Cabby. Hashtag his, what's his, his name? name? Is his name is Cabby? Come on. <laughs> it's short for uh, Cabrels. Uh, for uh, Cabitha. Cabanella. Uh, Cab- Cabaroni. Yes, I'll, any of the above will do. Yeah. But just come on, C.S. Lewis. Like, can't give him a name yet. Like, he's known. Like, he's been in these kids' presence for so long, and you're telling me they haven't gone. Like, they know the horse's name. You think yeah. they wouldn't? You think they wouldn't have been like, "Hey, sir, what's your name?" That's one of the first things that I do when I meet someone new. Is I uh, want to you, know their name. I mean, I don't want to know people's names, but I at least ask. To be fair, do you want to know new people? I mean, generally. Sometimes. I, more, I want them to know me. Not necessarily <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> I'd like to be known, but I don't want to know anyone myself. That sounds like a lot of work. True, 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 true. Um, uh, but yeah, so Aslan brings her in, and as opposed to being frightened, uh, you know, Nellie, as she will be later called, uh, she thinks it's a dream until she sees Aslan. As we've talked about before, it's a really interesting circumstance that, you know, our perspective shapes, uh, or our perspective is shaped by who we are and what we do and where we're from and coming from. And that she thinks this is a dream until she sees the lion and was like, you know what? I don't think this is a dream. And she doesn't look frightened. Uh, she gives the lion a curtsy. She seems to know that this dude's in charge. Uh, and so gives her a little country curtsy. I also like the shade that C.S. Lewis throws to the younger generation while he talks talks about her giving a curtsy. Like, mm. you know, back in the day, some people knew how to give a little curtsy here and there. Just yes. like a weird personal gripe that he just works into this, like, austere moment. Back in my day, people used to curtsy. You know, when I was a kid, these these people would wear their pants around their waist, not around their ankles. This is... Being written in the mid nineteen hundreds, I would be hard Back in my pressed. Day, these women weren't showing so much ankle. <laughs> All of these women showing forearms. Oh my uh, gosh! These hussies. These hussies. Where's like, Aunt Letty? Aunt Letty, Queen Jadius has got her arms exposed again. This is the worst. Uh, remember, remember. Hey guys, we just had a uh, technical difficulty uh, that cause one of our computers to crash so we are jumping back in uh having just talked about some uh some too much skin being shown in these uh this narnian wilderness but kel you were saying something yeah so basically i was just transitioning from there to the next section where uh cabby and, and nelly are standing before aslan he says my children you are to be the first king and queen of narnia no request just a statement uh, a fact that they will be because Aslan says, and it is. Um, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in my further up and further in of this interview process, basically that happens from here. But Aslan tells them that you're to rule and name all these creature, do justice among them and protect them from their enemies because enemies will arise because there is an evil witch in this world. 
Uh, and then the cabbie doesn't feel very qualified for this because he is an edu- educated, uh, E-D-D-Y-C-A-T-I-O-N, some good old education. Uh, he ain't no sort of chap for a job like this, uh, and, which sounds very like hick as opposed to really British. And so, uh, you know, what a, uh, whatever it might be. But uh, I'm going to talk about this interview process a little bit. But Chase, what do you think about this whole little scene? I mean, I just think that, I mean, it's a nice idea of all it takes to be king. Like, because essentially the rules for being king are work hard, be nice, don't enslave people, be fair, and fight when you have to. And, like, as principles, great. I mean, we've both been part of organizations that do things like events and organize people and make things happen. And I mean, I have to imagine that there's a little bit more admin that Aslan is giving credit for. I don't know. Seems seems a little ridiculous to me. I think if you're a decent human being, you can leave the planning and uh, you know, who needs to know strategy for war as long as you're willing to fight in it? Who needs to know, uh, you know, governmental policies so long as you're a good human? Pl- like, uh, I think you raise a great point. Like, what's the cabbie's taxation policy? Yeah. Like, what's his foreign you know, policy? Is it Narnia first? Is it, is, what's he, what's he going to do with this? Like, this is the, it's the classic, uh, you know, uh, George Lucas conundrum uh, where he, you know, in the, in the prequels to the Star Wars movies, uh, decided like, hey, like no, like you know, everyone loves Aragorn, but no one ever asks what his tax policy is for the for the people of Gondor, and he wanted to explore his tax policies and opened up the prequels with a trade negotiation uh, with the the Federalists who are are the you know the the, the people who are rebelling against the Republic, and so. Maybe the cabbie does need a little bit more than just being a decent human being. He needs yeah. a little bit of of, uh, of preparation. But Aslan thinks that's fine, so it's fine with me. Sounds good. I mean, no one has ever been put in charge off of broad ideas and no plan. It's never happened once before. This is the nope. first time. First time. But at least the cabbie is a decent human. And he seems like a good guy. Nellie seems like a good girl. So yeah. seems feels nice. like... Feels like this should be fine, um, and you know their inhabitants will never cause any issues uh, yeah. in the land of Narnia. So, oh, for sure, I'm sure they'll never start chopping down forests or starting wars with the Calamans to the south. Never, I would not expect this from you know the sons and sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. This seems ridiculous to me. Of course not. They've never messed anything up ever. No nope. once. Zero mistakes. Humans flawless. Bingo. True. End of story. Wrap it up. That's what I was taught in school as well. But all that to say, they are uh, told that they will be made the king and queen, and that their coronation will be held uh, presently. Whereas at the beginning of this conversation, Aslan has called not just the cabbie over, but also Polly, and he turns to Polly, and he's heard this story now at this point, and he says, "Little daughter, you are welcome here." Have you forgiven the boy for the violence he did you in the Hall of Images in the desolate palace of the accursed charm? She says, yes, Aslan, we've made it up. And the chapter ends on what's got to be 
one of the most like pee your pants moments for Diggory because he says that is well. And now for the boy himself. And like what a terrifying statement where you just like this dude, this giant lion is now like about to deal with judgment upon you. Yeah. I do think it's interesting. Like Aslan knows more about Charn than Diggory shares. Like I'm, oh, I'm yeah. looking at it right now. Like he has more detail in his conversation with Polly than Diggory shared in his telling of the story. He is all knowing. The uh, could just be C.S. Lewis giving us a shortened version of the actual full conversation. Sure. I prefer to think that Aslan sees all and is all, but well, to uh, be fair, he he's aware of the evil queen, like in Narnia before having this conversation. Oh, because yeah. he's already I mean, talked she about did this. Throw an iron bar at his head. Like it's hard not to be aware of her. You're he pretty may not aware. have reacted, but he noticed. He's you're not gonna not notice being struck on the head, but he is having this conversation with the Council of Elrond. Uh, previous to this so i think he's got to know uh, about all of this and he is all knowing uh he already knows the cabbie so just I think the detail of the hall of images and the desolate palace yeah like it's one thing to say like oh like have you forgiven him for what happened striking the bell that he mentioned earlier but now nah, he's like gets super specific yeah and I really love the idea that like he is not willing to move on until he's made sure not that Polly has gotten like her due in it, but that she is also forgiven degree that everything is said yeah. like part of the arrangements, like the theme of this chapter is that like everyone's gotta be square. Like we're not just going to skip over something and, Polly hasn't been forgotten. She's still part of the story. Absolutely. No, I'm uh I'm with you. She's and this is I think also an important thing that like part of her like Aslan is working towards reconciliation in this moment. So yeah. This is for her good to be able to work into forgiveness, which is a hard thing to do. Uh and so reconciliation is always more work than uh than just saying, Okay, we good. But yeah. Absolutely. Chase, do you have any uh, any further comments on here? Are you ready to move further up and further in? I think I'm ready to go further up and further in. Uh, I think you're. Uh, I think I think you should start because I think you're. Yeah, this, this is directly relevant. Yep. Um, but yeah, so I just wanted to talk about the consequences of Diggory's choices. So as we've talked about, Aslan has Diggory reveal the whole of what he had done, the choices he made the consequences they had. And and this is necessary. When we mess up and make bad decisions, our instinct, more often than not, is to hide and hope that nothing will come out of it, that it will just go away. But what Aslan knows is that freedom comes from truth, not lies or hiding. So they cannot move forward without first addressing the elephant in the room and then telling that elephant what degree did. Which, if you didn't catch that joke, there's there a, was an elephant in the yeah, Council of Elrond. Elrond's, yeah, yeah. It, it was a, I, I thought it was a smart joke. Anyways, Aslan's goal is to deal <laughs> with evil, and evil is like a weed. It has to be dealt with down to the root cause if you're going to fully eradicate it. 
And so Aslan isn't shaming Diggory here. He isn't heaping on commentary or listing out punishments. He's simply asking for the whole truth to be revealed so everyone can move forward in right action. And in a way, the act of confessing here and having to confront the consequences and see them for what they are is kind of Diggory's punishment. Like, like there's a Hebrew concept that God's judgment on sin is often just the sin itself and its consequences. Like if a, sh- if a fish were to jump out of water thinking that it wanted to break out of the boundaries that were set for it, the experience of flopping on the pier is in itself a natural judgment for the act of trying to leave the proper order of things. Similarly, Diggory has to face up to the act that every action has a reaction, every sin has a consequence, and he is responsible for the evil now in the world. Yet, Aslan has a plan and offers hope to everyone there, including Diggory. So it's just cool to kind of see how how we can't just skip it. We can't just skip to this solution without digging down to the the core of how we got to this point. That's good. I like that. Uh, for me, uh, I know we we joked about this earlier, but I want to my further up and further in. I want to uh, talk about this concept of proper royalty and what this really means to be royal, to be noble. Um, so far in this book, we've seen a lot of different uh, aspects of royalty, specifically as uh, relayed by the queen. But in this moment, Aslan says, hey, I want you to rule. I want you to name these creatures, to do justice among them, to protect them from their enemies. And then he asks them, hey, can you use a spade and a plow and raise food out of the earth? Can you rule these creatures kindly and fairly, not like slaves? Will you bring up your grandchildren and your children to, to do the same? Will you, you know, bring them up to not pick favorites among your children and among the people of Narnia and the creatures of Narnia? Will you be the first to charge into battle and the last one to retreat whenever you're protecting your country from enemies? Like, if you can do these things, that's what a king should do. And it really, I think for me, boils down to like, it's talking about someone's like goodness, right? Like, are they, it's their worthiness, right? Uh, If you, uh, you know, look at the, uh, look at the story of uh, uh, the movie Thor, right? He is uh, what makes him ultimately being worthy of Mjolnir, worthy of the throne of Asgard, is not just the fact that he's strong, uh, not just the fact that he's, uh, you know, a great fighter, not just the fact that he's, you know, a beautiful man in Chris Hemsworth, but it's the fact that he is good, he's courageous, he's honorable, he uh, is self-sacrificial, he's generous, he's all these things. That's what makes him worthy of being a good king. And earlier in this story, we've seen stor- like we've seen the queen basically uh, determine that, hey, royalty and nobility comes from power. It comes from strength. It comes from uh, being able to impose your will and that, you know, magic is might, that those who have this strong uh, nature that those who are most powerful should rule. Uh, she's that's what she did in in Charn. Where hey, if I can't have it, you know, no one can. But I will be queen over nothing. Uh, I will be queen in all of my power, kind of thing. And and you know has de she has derided and, and condescended uh, against uh, the the children, basically being like, hey, y'all aren't worthy. Your uncle isn't worthy. None of you are worthy to even be in my presence because of my strength. And then you look at Aslan, the guy who is creating everything is aware of all things and can, you know, defeat all enemies acting in humility here. He is 
speaking with the creatures that he has created, not as, you know, people who suck, people who are to be, um, you know, made fun of, except when he roasts the crow. Uh, he's not doing anything. He is, he's a personable God. He is the true ruler. And then he sets up a cabbie and his wife to be kings and queens saying like, hey, you, if you are good, if you are decent, if you look out for the well-being of others and you work hard, those are really the qualities that I'm looking for in a ruler. It's someone who's going to care about other people. And so I just think that's a, it's a really interesting um, conversation that he is continuing to have throughout this book. Yeah. Well, everyone, a hole has been dug. We've been planted and watered. And now we must sit and think about what we've done. We are so glad you joined us today on uh, the Chronicles of Podcasts. Uh, continue, please, to uh, to find us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if you enjoy this show, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does. Five stars. Yeah, give us those five stars. And, uh, yeah, we'd love if you'd interact with us on our Instagram, at Chronicles of Podcasts, uh, where we are posting and we love to hear from you guys, especially if you have any uh, comments or or even a first or second or third joke to share with us uh, after this set of chapters. Um, yeah, thank you, guys. We will see you next week. Peace out. I hope that uh, I hope that I can salvage. Hey, the, dude, uh, we'll make it stuff work. Stuff that just happened. Hey, it all—it's—it was bound to happen at some point. Yeah, I'm shocked that it didn't happen until chapter eleven. So, um, all honesty, the recording that like processed and saved is an hour and nineteen minutes long. So I assume that's that's everything. I um, think yeah, that sounds about right. So I think we'll be good.